Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron at Barron Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us at the intersection of policy, economics, and demography. Today's episode, here come the NatCons. Today we declare independence from neoconservatism. We declare independence from neoliberalism, from libertarianism, from what they call classical liberalism. Anyone who follows politics who's over the age of 40 is very accustomed to a Republican Party whose economic policy has really been dominated by three major pillars. One would be relatively low taxes. Second would be free trade. And third is light antitrust enforcement. And that consensus, that Republican policy focus, really is the legacy of the embrace by Ronald Reagan in the late 70s and early 80s of supply-side economics, a marriage, a relationship, an alliance that endured for approximately four decades. For the first time in about 40 years, the Republican Party is changing its fundamental underlying view of economic policy and the business community. And although this revolution in thinking is by no means complete and much remains to be determined, the faction, the community at the center of this change, of this debate, are what is called national conservatives or NATCONs. Let me welcome my co-hosts, Johnny Fluger. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here as always. And Jeremy Furchgon. Good to be here. Thank you. Today's episode is going to explore what is national conservatism, who are the national conservatives, and what are the implications of national conservatism for the business community. And the premise is that if the current trend continues, which we don't know that it will, but if the current trend continues and NatCons accelerate in their impact on right-of-center thinking, especially thinking within the Republican Party, then the consensus policy views likely will come undone, and we'll be looking at a very, very different role of the Republican Party in shaping the policy framework within which the business sector operates. And so this question of the nature And the success of NatCons is, we would argue, absolutely central to the prospects of major businesses in the United States and will have a major impact on how those businesses plan for various policy futures. To get a sense of how NatCons think of the business community, of the corporate sector, I think it's useful to reference a June 2022 statement of principles that was signed by more than 70 NatCon leaders. Quote, transnational corporations showing little loyalty to any nation damage public life by censoring political speech, flooding the country with dangerous and addictive substances and pornography, and promoting obsessive destructive personal habits. End quote. And this sentiment, this sort of deeply anti-business, anti-corporate ethos, is most powerfully channeled, perhaps, by Rachel Bovard, who's a former Senate staffer and now someone who's deeply involved in the NatCon movement, is the co-host of NatCon Talk, which is a leading, as you would imagine, NatCon podcast. And I want to sort of have her reference, in part, how she views the corporate community. To me, national conservatism has to be the recognition that this moment, the thing conservatives must fight to conserve is the nation itself. The woke ideologies, the universities who teach it, and the cultural and corporate elites who enforce it are fundamentally anti-American, totalitarian, and absolutely convicted about the justice of punishing dissent and destroying any check on their own power. 
So let's take a little bit of a dive into the substance of national conservatism. One of the leading thinkers in the national conservative movement is Yoram Hazoni, born in Israel, educated at Princeton and Rutgers. He really has become the center of the intellectual movement that is giving national conservatism specificity and giving national conservatism its core direction. And he has identified a couple strands, two or three elements, as the foundation of the movement intellectually. If we're going to return to the idea of a nation, we need to return, in fact, to three principles. First, national independence. Second, national cohesion. And third, national traditions. National independence is the principle that says the world is governed best when the world is divided up among many different nations. They have borders among, they're divided by borders, and each one has within its borders its own laws, its own traditions, its own way of doing things, and it leaves the others alone. So as his only references, the nation state is central to the NatCon view of the world and the importance of varied and independent sovereign nation states as best reflecting the preferences, habits, traditions of their specific populations. There's a second element to national conservatism, which isn't highlighted as much by Hazoni, but I think in an American context is incredibly important, which is the disdain for experts intent on imposing unfamiliar values on the population at large. And the second element, which is, again, this opposition to elites and other experts who think they know better than the common man, is, again, one, I think, of the defining features of national conservatism. Johnny, I want to turn to you and to give our listener a little bit more detail on where this instinct comes from, its provenance, and how you see it unfolding in the current context. I think this perspective has origins in a few places. One of the most important is the work of James Burnham, who was one of the early intellectuals around National Review, and William F. Buckley in the, I guess, traditional reading of his activity. And he wrote a best-selling book in 1941 called The Managerial Revolution. He had been a Trotskyite and broke with Trotskyism and then became an ardent anti-communist. In that book, he identified a third class in American life, the managerial class, you might, using other terms, call them the ruling class, the elite, the class of people we've spoken about in terms of the political monoculture in Washington, a group of experts, of technocrats, of meritocrats, who, in contrast to the capitalists, the business people with family fortunes and the proletariat, the working class, actually are directing the means of production, either from government or in the great corporations. And this class of expert, in his view, is increasingly disconnected from the citizenry and the concerns of the citizenry. And so I think that James Burnham's work developed renewed appeal for a number of reasons. First, the global financial crisis discredited in the minds of many people who would later identify themselves as national conservatives, the expert class, especially conservative economists. And Johnny, to your point, the fusing 
of this nationalism with what we'll call populism. And it's important to note that another term for national conservative would be national populist or national populism. It doesn't come out of nowhere. So for decades, this sort of nationalist populist instinct within the right had very little currency. There were blips here and there where it would emerge for a moment, but then it would quickly sink back under the surface. And so I think it is notable that national conservatism started to gain momentum really in the last 10 or 15 years. And the reason for that, I think, is the perceived failures of elites in at least three major policy assessments. One was the Iraq War where the experts had a certain view of how things would unfold and end up not being that at all. The second was the great financial crisis, the Great Recession, which again shocked financial elites and did great devastation to the American economy, which is still having implications today, of course. And third was the trade relationship with China, which as we've discussed in previous episodes, was predicted to be an unalloyed good for the United States and is now seen in retrospect by many folks on the left and the right as being a catastrophe. So those failures, or at least perceived failures, by the policy elites set the stage for national conservatism to contest anew established conservatism and the libertarian policy consensus. The banner year for national conservatism is 2015. That is the year that Angus Deaton and Ann Case's study comes out showing that there has been a tremendous decline in social capital, a theme we've discussed, among working class whites who comprise a significant percentage of the Republican voting base. And many people looked at that study and other works before and immediately after it, such as from Charles Murray and Nicholas Eberstadt of the American Enterprise Institute, and said, whoa, something is deeply amiss. We have been using these mantras of lower taxes, lower regulation for a long time. And at the end of the day, What are marginal tax rates doing to ensure human flourishing prosperity among our voters? It appears that there's very little connection between the two. And I think that is, in some sense, the pivot from the Tea Party movement, which was about more limited government, not the Obama administration, not continuing the bailouts of the Bush administration toward an acceptance of a more interventionist economic policy. In his book published last year, The Right which is a very impressive history of the conservative movement since the 1920s, Matthew Continetti traces this shift in conservatism in the last 10 or so years. And I think, Johnny, your pointing to 2015 is as good a date as any. Away from optimizing for global flows of capital, labor, and commodities, and instead toward promoting national sovereignty and independence. There are three other stimuli for national conservatism that I'd like to mention. First, I think it channels a great deal of dissent from and discomfort with and criticism of the late Bush administration and NatCon's perception that the Republican establishment was unwilling to call balls and strikes on the Bush administration. Second, And we've seen this play out, for example, in Senator Josh Hawley's questioning of Naomi Rao when she was a judicial nominee. Now she's a judge. There is dissatisfaction with the weighting of conservative advocacy toward the conservative legal movement. And I think that's borne out in the NatCon policy agenda. And the third, I think, is the view that many leading conservatives channeling Harvard's Harvey Mansfield 
have come to accept conservatism merely as a critique of liberalism, not being interested in ends that are self-generated, not really being interested in achieving anything except arresting liberalism or progressivism at the margins. And they view national conservatism as a pivot toward a conservatism that will actually be more successful in all sorts of policy areas than mainstream conservatism has been since the Clinton administration. And I think, although NACONs, to my knowledge, don't put it exactly this way, a NACON reading of history looks at the business community and the alliance the business community struck with Republicans starting in the 70s and then the 80s, and that persisted for some decades, as this convenience that allowed the business community to ride the wave of limited government conservatism at a time where that view appeared ascendant. And when it became clear right around the period following the Tea Party, when limited government conservatism was, in fact, never going to be successful, that for reasons that are deeply structural, bigger government seems inexorable, it seems unavoidable, the business community found a way in the NatCon reading to ally itself with the forces in favor of bigger, more intrusive government. And as part of that, embraced the woke agenda again, from a NatCon reading. And so applying Burnham to the present situation, that meant to NatCons that not only was the right vested in battling elites, the managerial class, but battling big business as allies of the managerial class. So that, again, the association of big business with the administrative state, the managerial class, whatever you want to call it, put the business community as part of an enemy alliance that needed to be fought. And as the business community made a judgment about how to best mitigate its political risk, it looked at the right and the libertarian thinking that dominated the right for so long and concluded reasonably that shifting left would not elicit much of a response from people, meaning libertarians, who didn't believe in the use of government power to impose policy outcomes. And so a very sensible calculation was made that we have this risk, meaning we, the business community, have this risk on the left. We'll move to the left, both somewhere in economic policy, but also on cultural policy. That will satisfy our left of center critics. And because the right has effectively disarmed itself and made the use of policy levers beyond the pale of acceptable mechanisms, this is all going to work out great. But what was not foreseen was the response, Trump, and the rise of the NACONs, which, of course, was accelerated by Trump, but also exists, we would argue, I think, as an independent phenomenon. Well, we should probably say something about Trump, Jonathan. Now that you mentioned him, one of the big misconceptions among outside observers of the conservative movement is to lump together all the various anti-establishment factions. The NATCOM movement is not the same as the MAGA movement. It is not the same as what people used to describe as the alt-right movement. There are different lines of fracture within the conservative movement, and the NATCONs are really focused on economic structure and national sovereignty. They're much less wedded to any particular leaders than people expect. Well, and Jeremy, I think you're exactly right, and let me offer a proof point. The most recent NATCON conference, National Conservatism Conference, organized by Yoram Hazoni and the Edmund Burke Foundation, was held this past fall in Miami. And if you sampled the programming, Trump was almost never mentioned 
it was striking how few times Trump came up. And when Trump came up, he was just sort of mentioned in passing. So I think your assessment is accurate in that Trump is quite distinct from national conservatism and its fate going forward. Now, the question would be, does national conservatism have a vehicle beyond Trump? And to that, I think the answer is a very likely yes, if you look at who has appeared at national conservatism conferences starting in 2019. And particularly in 2021 and 2022, as I recall, Ron DeSantis, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, et cetera, et cetera, all have appeared at national conservatism conferences and given major addresses. So that this nascent, small, fledgling movement is able to attract many of the leading contenders for the post-Trump Republican Party leadership, I think is indicative of its growing influence and its centrality to the future of the Republican Party. There was a clear affinity between Trump and the national conservative movement when candidate Trump came down the escalator at Trump Tower. One of the interesting things about the speech he gave is he identified, I forget the exact phrasing, the strength of U.S. society with our people. That was almost certainly his formulation. And it was, on one level, extremely anodyne, but on another level, striking relative to so many conservative officials who identified the character, the strength of the U.S. with the views of the founding fathers and the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Federalist Papers. He said, full stop, we are a nation of people. And that is an aspect of national conservatism, which we haven't addressed yet in this podcast, which is that it looks to your average American as a citizen, not as a consumer. I think the national conservative view is that mainstream conservative economics has focused on the individual American as a consumer. What matters is getting them low-cost goods, getting them a college degree at an affordable price, getting them a car at an affordable price, getting them a house at an affordable price, at least before the financial crisis. That was conservative economics. And national conservatism, like Trump, says, no, people are not just consumers. And the irony, of course, is that President Trump's tastes and habits and style is identified totally with consumption. But I think he in how he conceptualized political economy, he had something for national conservatives. And Hazoni very much puts philosophical detail around that point, which is this core contention, which is that a nation is not simply the random collection of atomized free individuals. The individual is not the most important element of a civilization. In fact, It's the collection, the agglomeration, the connections and ties between and among individuals into families, clans, tribes, nation states. That is the core instinct and priority of political organization and a political entity. I also want to note, because I think it's quite unusual, that if you look at the history of modern conservatism, I would say especially, let's call it the 1970s on, it's exceptional that a leading entertainment media talk show host figure becomes identified with a strand of conservatism. So we think about Rush Limbaugh. Yes, Rush Limbaugh was a great champion of Reaganism and of Reagan, 
but wasn't really identified with various factions within the conservative movement. The same could be said of a Paul Harvey in a different way or a Bill O'Reilly during his reign as cable news number one talk show host. But in fact, today, Tucker Carlson, who does have the top-ranked show on cable news television, is very much a self-identified NatCon and a leader of the movement. And he delivered the keynote address at the first National Conservatism Conference held in 2019. And I think tellingly, his address to that conference had the very ominous title, Big Business Hates Your Family. In 2019, the threat to the things that I want to do and the things that I want to say, the threat to my conscience, to the ability to believe what I choose to believe, and that's the fundamental right, that those threats really come primarily from companies and not from the federal government. Yoram Hazoni, as we heard in the opening clip of this podcast, really explores the different priorities of national conservatism and more establishment legacy conservatism. Of course, this has profound policy implications, and I think we should look at three specific issue sets, the first being trade. The national conservative position is that the trade regime that prevails today has disinherited working-class Americans of what had been their birthright in the post-World War II era, which is the opportunity to get a good manufacturing job and provide for a family on one income and provide for upward mobility for one's children on one income. And national conservatives support all sorts of measures to ameliorate this status quo. Tariffs are just one example NatCon support industrial policy to reshore manufacturing to the United States and encourage its development. They believe that there is no job as good as a manufacturing job in terms of both producing value and producing human dignity. And you already began to see this in 2009 when Matthew Crawford published his book, Shop Class of Soulcraft. And he was writing about his own experience as a motorcycle mechanic. And that book received some attention at the time. But subsequently, I think this view has developed that there would not be all these pathologies in the Midwest, in other parts of the country where, for example, the opioid epidemic has been quite strong if we had not opened ourselves to trade from China and working class people had been allowed to continue to flourish working in manufacturing. We turned them into consumers of cheap goods from the Far East, and as a result, we've brought on these terrible consequences. That's the view of trade. And the embodiment of this shift, Johnny, I think perhaps is best found in Marco Rubio. So Marco Rubio was elected to the Senate really as a champion for the pro-growth libertarian economic policy set. Right, He was the leading candidate in many ways promoted by the Club for Growth during that period. And so, again, he had a very classically right-of-center, Reaganite economic approach. And in the last several years, really probably going back starting four or five, six years ago, he made this shift away from that policy set to a NatCon perspective. Where I come from, we've become defenders of the right of businesses to make a profit, the right of shareholders to receive a return on their investment and the obligation that people have to work. All of these things are true, but we have neglected the rights of workers to share in the benefits they create for their employer. And we've neglected the obligation of businesses to act 
also in the best interest of the workers and ultimately of the country that have made that success possible. I think that trade policy has been one of the greatest successes of the national conservatism movement. If you look at key elected officials who are NatCon adjacent and that they've embraced certain NatCon views, but not all, often that area of alignment with national conservatism is on trade. And Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas is a great example. We must also show unerring resolve when protecting the livelihoods, wages, and jobs of Americans. We must rebuild an economy that works for all citizens, especially the forgotten men and women left behind by decades of open borders, unfettered trade, and globalization. That starts with the basic truth rejected by Democrats and unfortunately, too many Republicans. We are a nation with an economy, not an economy with a nation. National conservatives are of the view that the managerial class convinced itself that the best thing to do would be to outsource manufacturing production to lower cost economies in Asia without even really thinking about the domestic implications for American citizens here. And to the extent there was thinking about the implications, the thought was the repercussions would be limited. They would be centered on small geographic areas such as furniture and textile manufacturing in North Carolina. And the national conservative view is these decisions were totally in misalignment with the interests of those American citizens and have had extremely far-reaching implications. And Johnny, to be fair to the policymakers and the libertarians, the policy imperative of outsourced manufacturing was an answer to the high inflation of the 70s. And those policymakers were fantastically successful in injecting huge volumes of low-cost goods into the American economy. Now, of course, the trade-offs, the consequences of that were not at all anticipated or acknowledged. And so you're 100% correct, although, again, the libertarian currency with policymakers came in response to a very real and serious problem. The second policy area I want to explore with respect to the implications of national conservatism is antitrust. And, Johnny, I want to turn to you as our resident expert on antitrust and competition policy, how NACONs are overturning long-held views among Republicans on antitrust. This goes to what we were talking about before. They see American citizens as citizens, as workers, as family members, not as consumers. And so the Borkian conception of the consumer welfare standard really, at least in this environment where even with high inflation in the last period of time, prices are still, relatively speaking, low. The cost of a large television as a percentage of family income is still lower than the cost of an equivalent Zenith TV in the 1950s. So the defense of big companies as bringing down the cost of goods doesn't have currency with them. And as a result, you see national conservatives being quite supportive of FTC Chair Lena Khan, Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust Jonathan Cantor, and their perspective on using antitrust to address problems in political economy and take on large corporations. They might not be concerned that these corporations are woke in a certain sense, but the NatCons are supportive of their use of government power to shellac, for lack of a better term, these companies. And you've seen that borne out, for example, in some of the comments that Senator Cruz 
who was very much identified with the Tea Party movement a decade ago, has made at Senate Judiciary Committee hearings related to antitrust. I will say from my perspective, the abuses of big tech are so egregious that I am more than happy to unleash the trial lawyers. This was a arguably shocking moment for someone who grew up in the conservative legal movement. The idea that you would say, let's empower plaintiff's lawyers was anathema. And that's, I think, a reflection of Senator Cruz seeing where NatCons are going and have gone and moving in that direction. But there's tension. There's tension in the NatCon view and the NatCon movement because it's not that they're anti-corporate because the problem is large corporations. It's because the current nature of the particular large corporations that exist today. So it's not really a vision of gig economy or small businesses necessarily. There's also this view in the national conservatism movement that large corporations historically in the United States have played really important roles in supporting workers. And so there is a complicated relationship with the view of large employers, and there are paradoxes there that still haven't quite gotten worked out yet. And we've written about this before. There is a longing for and a respect for the 1950s and 1960s before the breakdown of bread and woods and the Arab oil embargo and stagflation when the U.S. economy was identified with large manufacturing enterprises such as General Motors. The NatCon certainly would love to see big, flourishing businesses that employ a lot of people that allow families to subside on one income and pay for upward mobility. I think, to your point, Jeremy, there is a division between their view of bigness and, as we've explored on previous podcasts, hipster antitrust view of bigness. But for right now, the big companies are problematic precisely because, in the NatCon view, they are being led by members of this managerial class that James Burnham described. And that is exactly the point, Johnny, which is that the NatCon embrace of antitrust policy and aggressive antitrust enforcement is not really about antitrust per se. It's about antitrust as a tool to constrain corporate power during a period of corporations embracing leftist cultural policies. And as more and more corporations have gotten involved in things like restrictions on speech and the promotion of various leftist ideologies, the right is now looking anew for mechanisms to beat back corporate involvement in the political sphere. And so antitrust becomes a very useful mechanism. If you look at what Senator Rubio and others have done around the thrift savings plan, the government 401k effectively, and preventing the asset managers that have contracts to run the TSP program from investing in Chinese securities, et cetera. You see government procurement also increasingly playing a role as a way to address corporate behavior. I think one thing that's interesting about national conservatism, Jeremy, is that it and hipster antitrust are similar insofar as I think the main object of their critiques are internecine. Hipster antitrust is focused on, from its perspective, redressing the wrongs of the neoliberals of the Clinton administration, people like Larry Summers, and national conservatives are focused on redressing the wrongs of the Republican establishment in and around the Bush administration, especially the second term of the Bush administration. 
And that, in a certain sense, I think, is one of the things that gives these two movements an affinity for each other. And we see lots of cross-pollination between the two movements. One important phenomenon in right-of-center antitrust these days is that as NatCons seek to use antitrust to go after large corporations that, as Jonathan described, are advancing various leftist causes, there's an intersection between NatCon objectives and more traditional Republican objectives in that mainstream Republicans are eager to attack the left. And so NatCon's use of antitrust channels that attack on the left, whereas NatCon's themselves, as Johnny has described, are not primarily attacking the left. They're putting forth a new vision of how the economy can be structured, and there's this internecine argument within the right. So you have, in antitrust, you have this intersection of NatCon's and the broader conservative movement, which has, I think, enabled this issue to really take off in the past few years. I also want to note, and I think it's an often overlooked point, that a lot of NatCon interest in antitrust policy is really about the prevalence of social media. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the inauguration of Donald Trump happened almost exactly a decade after the launch of the iPhone. And especially preceding the election and inauguration of Trump, you had young children start to get iPhones in large numbers. And so as tech became social media, and as social media was seen by NACONs, who are primarily a parents' movement, right? Parents, you know, fatherhood, motherhood, family life is really central to the NACON identity. Senator J.D. Vance really powerfully expresses this view. We need to support families in this country. It's the most important, they're the bedrock of our entire civilization and society. I think the government can send a signal to people to say, look, We honor families, we honor children, we want people to have successful, healthy families. And if there are ways that we can help out financially to make it easier to do that and to send a signal that we're a pro-family society in the process, I'm all for it. But that led to this backlash against tech, which had just become synonymous with social media. And the prevalence and the perceived negative consequence of social media really has supercharged antitrust sentiment. So whereas the biggest companies are tech companies and where those tech companies are by and large, or in many cases, social media companies, and as those social media companies have an ideological preference that is seen as hostile to the right and hostile to parents and hostile to traditional family life, NACONs have increasingly settled on antitrust as a necessary response. Third policy area we should explore is tax policy and financial services. Perhaps most tellingly, the signature domestic policy achievement of the Trump administration was the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And that is associated by many establishment conservatives with the higher growth rate and wage increases that followed in subsequent years until COVID-19. What's interesting is within the national conservative world, that Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is seen as a betrayal and the legacy not really of Trump, but by the architect of the legislation, Paul Ryan, who is a pre, if not anti, NatCon figure. For decades, if you had to summarize conservative economic policy preferences, you had to boil it down to one policy preference, it would be lower tax rates. 
And so it's really striking to see that NatCons are either agnostic or in certain cases opposed to that. So there's a real revolution that is underway. And the seed of this opposition to tax cuts as a defining policy really was expressed many years ago by Patrick Buchanan in one of his insurgent campaigns for president. If one of these wins the nomination, the GOP nomination, we risk a replay of 1992 and 1996, where both major parties will agree on most major issues and a pillow fight will ensue over some dinky tax cut. This will satisfy the national establishment, but it will cheat middle America. I think the view of many after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is that a great deal of the benefit accrued to large companies, and what did they do with those tax savings? They bought back their own shares. And you see Senator Rubio coming out very strongly with a critique of share buybacks. And the view is that it represents a kind of financial engineering that helps the managerial class that is running the company that owns shares in the company, but it doesn't actually lead to investments in plant and equipment and increased productivity. That is one of the signature claims of the supply side movement that by cutting taxes, you will unlock greater value through investment in the business. And I think the NatCons look at the history of that argument and say it's not really borne out. And why should we be giving such great financial benefit to companies that are increasingly adversarial to us and hostile to us. We should reward our constituents and punish our adversaries just like progressives do. And combined with this preference among NatCons for manufacturing slash production over consumption slash financial engineering to changes in the tax code that would try to disincentivize the financial engineering that NatCons argue has been such a prominent feature of the modern economy. And NatCons were strongly supportive of the CHIPS Act and a lot of different pieces of legislation related to industrial policy, related to COVID, because they see the government as not just being a mechanism for lowering taxes, but the government as a mechanism for doing all sorts of things that encourage industrial production in the United States. I think unlike the left-of-center statist view of the economy, I think the NatCon view is that ideally private industry would be investing in R&D and manufacturing and all the things that NatCons would like corporations to do with their profits, but that there's been a failure that major corporations such as specific tech companies that have been singled out, pharmaceutical manufacturers have been singled out also – that they have basically abandoned their role and the government is there as this backstop or as this force that's trying to compel business to do what it really should be doing in the first place. So it's not identical to the left of center preference for government uh, control. I think one other theme we should address is the NatCon critique of private equity. And I think it's fair to say that NatCons have become increasingly critical of private equity and they see private equity as misaligned with the interests of the employees that work for private equity-owned companies. In private equity's view, in stripping out inefficiencies actually leads to the deterioration of the living conditions of 
the employees who work for private equity. NatCons have been supportive of removing the tax deductibility of interest payments and leveraged buyouts, as an example. And certainly in addressing the carried interest question, I think those have been previously third rails for people who define themselves as right of center on economic policy. But when you distill all of this, what I think the listener should most appreciate is that NACONs level a fundamental criticism of conventional Republicans for imagining that there is this neutral free market where if politicians just withdraw from that market, buyers and sellers will find each other at optimal prices. And NACONs point to the massive administrative state and other increasingly interventionist government mechanisms, as well as the combination of the corporate sector with government and NGOs, and say, are you kidding? There is no real free market. And so if there's not going to be a free market anytime soon, then we better have our own interventions that produce the policy outcomes we prefer. And so again, at root, NACONs reject the very notion of anything resembling a free market in the American system and say, well, if there's going to be a competition to shape the real market that exists, then we better compete. As a new movement, national conservatism has much to prove. I think at this early stage, it's safe to say that it exhibits a very high degree of energy and confidence, especially relative to what is derisively called by NACON's conservatism, Inc., meaning establishment conservatism. And so there are characteristics of national conservatism that suggest increasing momentum and force. Having said that, the movement confronts some very, very serious headwinds, some of which arguably emerged during the most recent midterm elections, but I think even go beyond that. And I want to discuss some of the obstacles that national conservatives will have to overcome if they're going to be successful in really shaping policy outcomes. I see three, two of which are substantive, and then one is more tactical. And I'll try to go through these quickly, and Johnny and Jeremy would welcome your commentary or other obstacles that you see. The first obstacle, and this really goes to Hazoni and his conception of national conservatism, is that Hazoni would really import to the United States a pure or a purer version of Edmund Burke's philosophy. And Burke, the 18th century Anglo-Irish statesman and philosopher, was, of course, the greatest champion in the English-speaking world of tradition, of custom, of habit as containing this inner genius that should be preserved as a force of stability in a society. And so conservatives for centuries now have hearkened to Burke as really a leading philosopher. But again, Burke is not American. And along with Burke's veneration of tradition, are the trade-offs of preserving social mores and systems and frameworks, which, of course, often involve all sorts of lack of equality, discrimination, and similar phenomenon. So in championing Burke, among others, but really Burke, as the leading light of national conservatism, Hazoni is sort of seeking to have the American system embrace something that really is quite foreign, especially to the modern conception of the political good. And so that leap is not going to be an easy one to make substantively. The second substantive problem that I think NACONs are going to have to deal with is that national conservatism has a very deep pessimistic element and presumes a civilizational catastrophe 
that is now afflicting the United States. And it points to, as you referenced, Johnny, earlier, declines in social capital, declines in manufacturing, declines in the middle class, declines in the working class as really part of a pandemic of suffering. And Donald Trump really made this point powerfully, in some ways shockingly, in his use of the word carnage during his inaugural address. And so Americans are by and large, even if Americans don't like their political system, and even if Americans tell pollsters they largely think the country is on the wrong track, they tend to be an optimistic people drawn to optimistic movements. You think of Ronald Reagan, you think of Bill Clinton, you think of Barack Obama. These were all hopeful, optimistic figures. Trump being a possible exception, although even Trump had this belief, this potent conviction in American exceptionalism and greatness. So again, NatCon's focus on the pessimism is not consistent with Americans' preference for political figures who believe and express that our best days lie ahead. Third and finally, and Jeremy, I'd like you to comment on this in particular, is that NACONs don't have a lot of obvious allies among established interests. So where in the 1970s, libertarians could draw on the business community looking for relief from burdensome taxes and regulations, it's not clear where NACONs will forge alliances that will grow the movement in terms of influence and resources. Yeah, I think there are two problems. One is it's hard for NatCons to find allies in the business community that would give them institutional resources and heft. I think there's another problem, which is that there is a kind of renegade anti-establishmentarian quality to the NatCon movement, which makes it really hard for the movement to build its own institutions. Whether those institutions are going to have the support of the business community or not, it's really hard to sustain a movement without institutions. And that's one thing that what NatCons would derisively call Conservatism, Inc. has succeeded in. Conservatism, Inc. has institutions, and those institutions have contributed to significant successes in certain areas, especially electoral successes. So thinking about what it really takes to build institutions, thinking about the timelines that are required to affect significant political change if Let's say every two years, roughly 15 to 20 Republican senators are up for re-election. Many are incumbents. How long it really would take to gain a critical mass on the Hill, it really will take some time. It will require institutions and a lot of infrastructure. And it's hard to see the current NatCon spirit really transforming itself or channeling itself into these institutions. In the near term, the best way possibly to understand NatCon's ability to overcome the obstacle that, Jeremy, I think you very rightly identify, is this forming coalition within the Senate. So you think about newly elected J.D. Vance. You think about Rubio, Hawley, to some extent Cotton, the new senator, Eric Schmidt from Missouri, and a few others. Are they able to come together as a caucus in the Senate and begin to cooperate to drive legislation forward. And so this question you raised, Jeremy, can NACONs operate in alliances? Can they form structures? Are they willing to actually be a productive, positive force when it comes to the thing that matters, which is policy, ultimately? I think watching that group and seeing are they able to function effectively is going to be an important near-term test of that proposition. I would add this question as well. In rediscovering James Burnham, NatCons have identified that 
the managers in charge of particular institutions can have interests that deviate from the people they serve. And we saw a form of this in the Trump administration when the term deep state, which was an obscure term in anthropology, became used to refer to executive branch officials who were subverting the purported will of the Trump administration. And the question is, do national conservatives have a program, a plan to address what they see as the monoculture of the managerial class, whether that class is civil servants and executive agencies, business school professors who they might characterize as Davos men and women, transnational elites. What is the program for opening up what's now a monoculture to more competition from their perspective? I think We'll have to wait and see over the next five and 10 years. Thank you, Jeremy and Johnny, for a terrific discussion. I think we gave our listener a good introduction to this new and potentially important movement. For those of you who are interested, if you go to our website, barronpa.com, the library section, there is a written political risk brief on this topic. I hope all of you will like and share this podcast. And we look forward to having you join us for a future episode of the Political Risk Brief. Risk Brief.